You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. 40 years ago, this is Emeritus Rex with Rabbi Ruben Yeshua Popko from Beth Israel, Beth Aaron. I know it's snowy and cold over there already in Montreal. You've got your first snowfall, right? Yes, we did. Yes, yes. And I, I'm sure you were out there in your big boots and, uh, and, 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 and snow shovel. Everybody saw the rabbi out there, right? I'm sure. I haven't shoveled snow since <laughs> I was a child. <laughs> yes. But anyway, but, you know, it's interesting that there are places, of course, in the world, a place that's close to our heart, of course, it's Israel, and the whole Middle East, which is nice and warm and toasty now. And because of that, starting this Sunday, there's going to be in that warm weather climate in the uh, wonderful country known as Qatar, um, the World Cup is going, the 2022 World Cup will take place there. Now, there's been a lot of uh, discussion about how Qatar was able to snag the World Cup and how significant it is that finally in an Arab country, in a Muslim a country in the Middle East, they're finally going to be playing the World Cup. And of course, the World Cup is something that uh, we are uh, somewhat interested in. I have to tell you, though, parenthetically, one of the reasons why I'm talking about this is because my team, the uh, the glorious Green Bay Packers, are having one of the worst uh, seasons that I can remember, really just very sad and horrible. So I don't want to talk about American football. And because of that, I want to turn. I mean, your Steelers might get back into it. I don't know. Um, but Let's, therefore, I, I want to turn to soccer. I want to turn to football and the fact that, let's start, first of all, that there is something significant here about the fact that Qatar has it. Uh, they might have you know, done all sorts of backroom deals to get it, but we know that Israelis will be going there. In fact, the Israeli, um, some of the, the ministries uh, that are involved in tourist education and protection have said, we know we're going to have Israelis going there they should be very careful when they go because Qatar did not join the Abraham Accords at all, did they? I mean, they are not, Qatar is not a place friendly for Jews. Well, but again, Israel kind of deals with them because they, uh, Qatar transfers all that money to Gaza, no? So in other words, the, the in a way they have to, it's, it's, it's a friend, it's not a frenemy. I mean, no, they, I wouldn't say go that far. No. I mean, Qatar, I think was offered to be part of the Abraham Accords and they staunchly refused. They're very close with the Iranian regime. I mean, they are they are right. they are Iran's you know number one stooge in a way or partner. Um, and, and I think you know parenthetically, I know you know about this as well. Um, there's been discussion uh, among the Iranian team, which I mean, the Israel team didn't make it, of course, but the Iranian team did qualify for. The Why Iranian do you say, team. of course? <laughs> yeah. Well. Um, just by sheer number, Ralph. Right. Uh, no, 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 no. Let me explain it better. This is similar to what happens um, here in the U.S. Uh, in the, in, in, we're going to talk about basketball later today. But in the yeshiva basketball teams and the yeshiva other leagues, the teams that always win are the teams that are from the giant schools. Like those of our listeners know about Frisch, which is a, a huge school in northern New Jersey. They always win, and the reason is is because or at least they have a large pool of players to, to choose from. It's not that Israelis are less athletic than their, uh, their European. You and know, the, the woman who came in second. But there, there, just aren't, there just aren't enough 
there isn't a great enough pool to produce a championship team. You know, the, the, the woman who came in second the other week in uh, the New York City Marathon was an Israeli. Hmm. Okay. Well, what, there's a difference between the ability to, to have the stamina, stamina and power uh, to get through a marathon and to be a, a oh, soccer player. This is right. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, again, especially we don't know much about it because again, we talked about our football. We, we don't actually, you and I, I don't think we, either of us recognize soccer as a real sport. Yeah, even, even saying soccer is probably going to insult. I mean, we're American. Americans, we, we don't recognize soccer. We don't, we don't know what it is. Yeah. I, I have to tell you though, my father, Ola Shalom, uh, was an avid soccer lover. He came from Lodz, Poland. And By the it, way, I'm happy you mentioned that because from what I understand, the number one, soccer team in Poland before World War II, and maybe number one is an exaggeration, was the Jewish soccer club from Lodz. <laughs> no, it was renowned in Poland. It really okay. I have to tell you, my that's interesting to know because my father's love for soccer was unbounded, and he was a boy. I'll tell you a funny story, a yeah. sad story. Okay. I was in Lodz. I don't know. See, I, I'm trying to talk to you about my father, and you have to tell me. No, I don't, I don't want to hear about your father now. Yeah, so okay. I was... Uh, I was remind me to say that the next time you invoke the great Baruch Aaron, <laughs> the next time you invoke your great Baruch Aaron of blessed memory, the great rabbi. Okay? Remind me to throw it back in your. No, head. no, I'm, I'm telling this as a background to your father's story. You'll oh, hear okay, thank you. No, 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 you're, you're not going to believe the story. Okay, I'm, I'm in Lodge, right? And we're driving down the main dragon Lodge, and there are swastikas everywhere, graffiti on walls. So I told to my Polish tour guide. And I go, what's with all those swastikas? Because <laughs> you don't see that in Poland. You really don't. I mean, it's like, you know, certain demonstrations you see, but you don't see like mass swastika or graffiti. So and this again, this is like just 10 years ago. We all know how long ago World War II was. So I say to him, what's with all those swastikas? Oh, he tells me, it has nothing to do with Jews. I go, do tell. <laughs> he explains to me and I was shocked. Apparently, there are two soccer teams in Lodge, and they're 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 very fierce in competition with each other. They hate each other. One of the soccer teams is from the area that seventy years ago was the Jewish area. So when the fans of the other team want to insult this team, they put up swastikas because Jews lived there seventy years earlier. That's how insane they are. But he told me. It has nothing to do with Jews. That is quite incredible. I In other words, they're fighting the ghosts. Go ahead. Yes, yes. yes. I, I will tell you again, even though my father was raised a Hasidic, Litvisher boy, like someone in the middle, somewhat Litvish, sometimes Hasidic, running around, soccer and, and football obviously was something that even uh, the Jewish uh, populace there uh, couldn't help be enamored of. Uh, to the point, I, I will tell you that that when my dad um, when my dad went to Argentina to visit his long lost sister, who also survived the war, when he came back, this this was one of the main things that that, that he talked about was visiting the Buenos Aires gigantic soccer stadium and going to a game. Um, when I when I took him to Eretz Yisrael in 1992, uh, we had an apartment overlooking the Coso Marovi. And that was so significant to my dad because it was hard for him to get back up the steps. But just as significant was, was the huge color TV we had in the house. And it was 1990, was also the soccer elimination rounds to get into the World Cup. 
he loved the thing. And, and, I, and I always wondered about it. You know, where did this the old European Jew get this love for this game that was so intense? Uh, um, it, it wasn't like he, they sat around bars. Uh, hey, look and, at this uh, picture. About it. This is a picture of the Jewish soccer I'm showing you as we speak. This is, this is uh, a picture of the large <laughs> soccer team. That's the Jewish soccer team. Wow, wow. You can not exactly uh, the heftiest group of individuals. You should it? see what the polls look like. <laughs> <laughs> I see. So we're, we're, what Rabbi Pupko is showing me is is is, is this group of, 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 of kids that look like they're Okay, this is, this is, Zhidowski means the Jews. This is the Jewish soccer team. This, this picture is from Bialystok. Bialystok, I can see. The Bialystokers look a little more mature there. Some yeah, of yeah. Well, the, well, the Bialystokers, there are a lot of uh, Litvaks there. So yes, were, yes. Yeah, this um, is the Jewish, this is the soccer, look at this one. This is the one in, in, in Kalish. I mean, there were there were Jewish soccer teams all over Poland. Wow, wow. And, and I, it, what's interesting is when I spoke to my dad about my love of football versus his love of, of what he called football or soccer, um, one of the things he mentioned was the fact that, and, and we know it's called the beautiful game, I don't know where that came from. I don't know who made that. It's not anything beautiful about yeah. it. But what he told me was, well, look, you have all these um, uh, players that are substituted. Uh, he says these guys are on the, the, on the field almost the whole game. Uh, and, and, and the energy, like, the fact that there was offense and defensive players to my father was like that was the anathema to what it means to be a good sports person, <laughs> right? What, what, you have to have another guy come in? Like, like, I have to explain to what's going on. Plus, soccer is actually a much quicker game. Now, you don't have scores like down fa Dan Fouts, you know, throwing 80 touchdown passes or whatever it is and making it 75 to 40 or whatever it is. You know, one to one is already an exciting game. But I could see the chess match type of, uh, of, of ideas that my dad was talking about. Just in once, just to tell you, when my, when my dad lived with me for seven years, um, the soccer games that he would watch were on the Spanish station that he had. Um, that, that was the TV in the house. We didn't have a TV upstairs. Uh, and and he, he got the TV so he could watch Spanish soccer. He watched it without the uh, sound because he couldn't hear Spanish. But and he would when I would walk in, he would say in Yiddish, kick was far a Look what type of players they are. Like, and he, would, he, would, he would be marveled by it. So, so I'm not surprised that my dad's descendants and others in Eretz Yisrael are making this trip to Qatar, right? This no, no, it's actually, I, I never, I always assumed, I don't know why, that the soccer fans in Israel were mostly the Spartan, but you know, you're right. I should never have assumed that. Yeah, they, they, there is somehow this inherent love of this game um, that, that yeah, but you know, you know, some of the stories from the soccer fans in Israel are not all that edifying. You know, well, a... well, in other words, it seems like you know we talk about the grubkite of the Philadelphia fans, which you know about. Right. It's very it's a legion, but it seems like that's the standard for all soccer fans throughout the world, right? They're all it's all supposed to be a bunch of grub, you know, people elbowing you and and, and screaming and throwing bottles and stuff like that, right? I guess the nicest fans, I guess, are polo fans. Those are wet, well behaved. <laughs> How about synchronized swimming fans? That might be something, <laughs> right? Right. You just have to, right? Can, can I have your binoculars, please? I'd like to see the way that, I want to see the guy's hand come out of the water properly. Uh, <laughs> but 
What's interesting, again, you know, I, I drove, by the way, when I was in Eretz so recently, when I drove on, on Highway 2, I saw the beautiful Netanya soccer stadium, you can see from the highway, um, it's lit up at night. Um, and, and we know, of course, we might as well, since we're talking about football and soccer in Eretz so, Rav Cook's statements in Oyrus, when he seems to be referring to the soccer players who are playing on Shabbos. And he, and we know that when the, the Yishuv and was beginning, and, and, and that was a mania for them almost. The Haredish world uh, condemned them. Yeah, I, it was just raised in the, in, the, in the media last week where Smotrich wants uh, soccer games moved from Saturday. It was, it, was, it was one of the articles I read. That was one of his demands in the coalition talks. I don't think that'll it, it go anywhere. That's uh, and, 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 and Rav Cook, you know, addressed this even in the 20s or whenever he wrote this letter. Right. It's, it, it comes to, it's about 100 years ago. And what he wrote was that, of course, we're condemning the Chilo Shabbos, but we have to realize that what, what is driving it is a desire to rebuild the goof of Klal Yisrael. Right. In other words, they're not just Meshuggah the soccer fans. There's something here that's, I guess, primal in trying to rebuild what was the body of people like Avner, uh, Ben Nir, and, 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 and Shimshon Agibor and others that have been part of our history. And therefore, if Cook says we shouldn't just um, condemn this out, outright, there might be something moving this, this wanting to play on Shabbos and build up their bodies uh, as something possibly, well, he thought it was a holy... But he himself, thing. just so our listeners aren't in any way confused, <laughs> he himself did not play soccer. I, 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 maybe there was a Havamina that he could come with his spodic to the uh, <laughs> and play the goalie, and maybe he could use his spodic to catch the balls. No, yes, of course not. <laughs> it, was, it was, it was, people see this piece as the ultimate um, bending over backwards hot stock for, for the excesses of, 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 the, of the irreligious and Rev Cook seeing this in a positive light. But I think there's something there that soccer. Is so entrenched in Eretz Israel that people would want to go. Oh, they're crazy. You walk, uh, you, you know, you, you, I've been in Israel during, yeah, I was in Israel once during the World Cup. You know, the games are in the middle of the night, but you walk around, let's say, on Hillel Street or, and the, the restaurants are open all night and people are outside watching the games together, Tel mm-hmm. Aviv, wherever you are, they're obsessed with soccer, obsessed. Uh, one of the things that I saw about this issue about Qatar and the World Cup, besides, uh, the uh, sort of like the machinations that Qatar went to get it was that the Iranian team, which did qualify, I mentioned it before, um, there's discussion that they might join the protests now in Iran. Right, and I saw that the opening match, I think it's called qualifying rounds. I, I don't really know what I'm talking about, but the one of the earliest matches is between the American team and the Iranian team. And And, and I know the Iranian team here wants to join the protests are happening around. Why don't you give us a background? Because I'm not uh, of what's happening in Iran. Those protests well, that are going on. Demonstrations now. It's quite astonishing. It's not the first time we've seen widespread uh, demonstrations under this uh, uh, under this government. We saw it, uh, you know, after the last election, not the last, but the one before the last election, where there was election fraud uh, alleged and demonstrators came into the street. But this is certainly more sustained. Uh, more widespread. When I say widespread, I mean I mean it in two ways: widespread geographically, and widespread through different sectors of the country. Uh, students, uh, you know, workers, everyone seems to be joining in it, and uh, and it's not going away so fast. Uh, it's a sustained now. 
Iranian, you know, some of the Iranian observers will tell you, oh, this is the first time there's a real threat to the regimes. Other, uh, others are not as optimistic, but uh, there's no question that this is a, ra- a radical departure from the norm in Iran. We have all these people joining the revolution. It started as a women's movement, really. It is now not a women's movement anymore. Everybody's involved. It was about the hijab. You have open displays of defiance, uh, you know, women walking without the, sh- the, the tichel on and, uh, and, and, and kissing in public and everything else. And uh, they're openly defiant. Also, this is actually, it's kind of funny where, and as, one of the, one of the, the maneuver, one of the things they're doing to show their defiance is they're knocking turbans off the heads of clerics. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? You, you sure. Notice, uh, you know. So, well, well, look, let, let me be simplistic here. We know that during the, the reign of the Shah, um, it, Iran and Israel were in a very decent relationship. Um, so w- we usually equate uh, the, the uh, fundamentalist regime with anti-Israel feelings, aspirations, and military threats that are a, a mortal threat to the survival. If these protests move things away from the Ayatollahs, isn't that better for Israel or, or am I missing something? You might be right. Again, um, you know, it, it's hard to imagine a more radical regime taking over. You would hope that those who love democracy appreciate Israel and, and want better relations with the West. You would hope that. And, uh, you know, there have been many people over the last 20 years who've said that the only way to solve the problem is not through uh, negotiations, not even through sanctions, but through regime change. And uh, if the if the Iranians can do it, it'd be remarkable, remarkable transformation. Right now, Iran is a source of problems in Lebanon, Iraq, in Yemen, and Syria, and beyond. And if uh, that could change, it, it would be it would, yeah, okay. Would be so, what's to stop them from unleashing? I don't know if it's the Red Guard, whatever the name of the Revolutionary their, Guard. Or, yeah. the Revolutionary Guard. What's what's to stop them from un- unleashing their 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 thugs Listen, to you, go beat right. everybody up? That's the key issue. The key issue is. Will the Revolutionary Guard and the Basij, the soldiers, the police, will they fire on their own people? And the hard course certainly has demonstrated a willingness to do so. Hundreds have been killed already. But the question is, if it's, if the demonstrations continue and the movement is sustained, will the rank and file follow orders? Because that's when things can switch. And just taking it back to the topic of our conversation, I know the captain of the of the football team has said that he will allow protests in, you know, there's a way that they can demonstrate their their solidarity with the protesters during the games. Right. And, and that so I it's think... It's becoming more open. It's becoming, uh, you know, uh, they're taking chances, these, you know, and you got to feel for them. Also, what's interesting is, to me at least, I mean, maybe I, I've said this to you before, is the lack of interest in these demonstrations in the West. In other words, this is a women's movement, young women's movement. You would assume that there'd be solidarity gatherings for the Iranian people, you know, on, on campuses across Europe and North America, and there aren't any. Uh-huh. And, and let's, con- let's contrast that to the Ukrainian. Uh, Ukrainian or even, even Ukraine, I don't think is getting the kind of gra- grassroots kind of uh, actions of solidarity, but you and I, because you're much older than me, 
you remember what happened in the, during. You know, I want to, can we stop for a second there? Because you do this almost every show about, <laughs> you know, I, I relish the fact that I am in my seventh decade, okay? And I, I like that. I like walking into a place and being the old guy, okay? You, for some reason, are clinging to this. You you hate my intro of 40 years. Like, what do you want? Oh, come on. You know what I'm saying? You didn't have hair in high school. Like, <laughs> come on, man. I stay forever young. Anyway, so the... Uh, so, but you remember, and I remember the apartheid regime. Everybody demonstrated, every campus. And the, and, the, and, the, and the horrible truth is that for a couple of generations now, kids have been taught one thing what does oppression look like? White, rich, privileged people exploiting people of color. And when, the, and when oppression doesn't match that paradigm, where the bad guy, is a minority, what's thought of as a minority religion, at least in North America, is Muslim or a person of color, an, an Arab or a Persian, whatever it is. And it's certainly not an enemy of America like Iran is. When you're an enemy of America or Israel, you have immunity. That's the reality because it doesn't fit into the paradigm of what oppression is supposed to look like. And when the bad guy is an Iranian who's an enemy of America, who isn't easily categorized as a capitalist or enjoying privilege or whatever uh, silliness there whatever the slogan of the day is they get they get immunity and if you're lucky enough to be an enemy of israel or an enemy of america the left will grant you immunity hmm. i see and, and it's interesting we talk about pigmentation the iranians are a lot lighter skinned by the way than many of their arab neighbors right. and they don't they, they don't even consider themselves arab Hey, listen, you, you, you live in a, in a world of skin color. I, I never see color. I've risen above that. You just, one second. You just I just, said, see, I just see the character of someone's soul. Uh, okay. I, I, don't, okay. I don't even see it. I am what Martin Luther King aspired to. Yes, I am yes, colorblind yes. completely. Yes, I just see it in the yes, soul. Yes, listen, I know that you were, you know, I think Ralph Abernathy might have been your roommate <laughs> in, 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 in their Israel. I no, no, so. but the, the, the Iranians are not Arabs. They're perfect. Right, right. They don't come to right. And, and therefore, you know, it's sort of different that the, the people they're oppressing are also in a way. Right, the, right. right. Whereas, whereas the Palestinians are, are darker pigmented than some of the Israelis. I don't know exactly if that's true or not, but, but you're right, because the Palestinians have done a, 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 a such an incredible job in, in casting themselves as the constant victim. So right. they're always able to get away with that. Um, let, let, let's segue into uh, another sports thing. We can end with this. Remember last year or two years ago, we, we talked about you know, basketball as a great Jewish sport. It was developed in many ways by Jews with the idea that, come on, we need to make, we need to have some money making thing to do when during the winter months, because football's over, baseball's too early. And that was one of the reasons why basketball could be played. True, inner, uh, kids from inner cities could play because it was housed in a, in a, in a, a place that was roofed and heated. No, but it was also inexpensive. You just yeah. needed a ball. You didn't need anything else. That's right. Right. And now, but we know we talked about the incredible meteoric rise of basketball and how it really has become, in a way, a very much the, the urban sport and in many ways even bigger than football in some ways. Okay, so let's end today with a little Jewish basketball thing that uh, note that I saw uh, coming across the wires. Uh, Ryan Terrell, uh, who uh, comes out of California, uh, he looks like just a lanky surfer guy. Um, mother is a, a, a Baptist 
uh, born a Baptist, converted to Orthodox Judaism, along with his dad, who was a, a reformed Baljuba. Uh, they sent their kids to AMEC, the Taravel Academy. Um, and the, the, the father had played college ball. He trained his kids from the beginning, from, from their youth, uh, not only in phase, but also on how to dribble, how to be a basketball player. And he became, of course, if you train a kid from the beginning, as we know, he became a star player, uh, not only in high school and in, in over there in California, but he, when he went to YU, which his father was somewhat surprised, he ended up becoming uh, the, the pillar of a YU team that set records, as you know, of 50 straight wins, uh, which was sort of unprecedented. Uh, and, and, and there was a big simcha about YU. The COVID, many people mourned the fact that due to the COVID pandemic, the, the YU team wasn't able to go and get their championship and their unbeaten season, whatever it was. Uh, but Terrell was, uh, was drafted by the Detroit Pistons uh, and sent down to their farm club, which is also in Detroit, which is called, I think, the Motor City Cruise. Uh, and, if you, and if you play well enough, you know, you get, you get your sea legs uh, then you're going to be able to advance to the NBA. Now, Ryan, according to his interviews, practices incredibly. Uh, he tries to, uh, he, I think, he, I think he, he, he practices 300 three-pointers every day. <laughs> Talk about- no, no, Listen, I, I, I happen to be with the president of YU, Dr. Ari Berman, Rabbi Dr. Ari Berman, last week where he was speaking here in Montreal. And I'll tell you something, it, it is quite remarkable, the Kiddush Hashem of that YU basketball team. Um, they really are a good group of guys. And they were in Texas. You told a great story. They were in Texas. And who shows up to root for them at some tournament? A delegation from the local Reform Temple. Because that's our team. I mean, it, right. is, it means a lot to Jewish kids. Sure. Um, it means a lot. It's a great thing. Yeah, right, and it was and and it was a story that needs to be extolled. Um, uh, and what's interesting though now is Terrell, who was the star of that team, right. uh, was drafted. And what's and, and the Times of Israel ran a uh, a blog from David Feldstein that he felt people need to discuss, which is he didn't get a posek to sp speak to him, but Allah Hank Greenberg, he said, "I'm going to play on Shabbos." Right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play, but I'm not going to be Machal Shabbos. Before Listen, Jew, Jewish kids have been playing basketball on Shabbos for a <laughs> long time. That's right. It's not that's a right. new thing. That's right. So, so I mean, listen, you could argue it's moved to the hole. You can argue a lot of things. That's right. But good from kids have been playing basketball on Shabbos for a long time. That's right. Again, the, the Midrashim that say, Lechorib Tor Malka, because Elish Mesachim Bekadur. But there's one thing, Ralph, about looking, <coughs> looking a blind eye on your way to shul when the kids are playing basketball in the front. It's another thing when it's, 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 it's your parnasa, it's what you do. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and he has said that Ryan and his family, he feels that he wants to show the world that uh, an Orthodox kid can do this. And, right. let's, and I, let's give, we talked about the Steelers, uh, how wonderful they were last week about how uh, the Pistons have said, yeah, you can keep Shabbos, you wear your yarmulke on the court, we're going to tell everybody uh, that that we've provided Shabbos meals for you in your hotel in Cleveland, uh, we gave you a light on. What do you think, Ralph? Do, do, you, do you see this as, as something great? 
Thor. Listen, I, I see the advantages, and obviously, you know, you know, I'll tell you what the truth is. When kids ask me today, am I allowed to play basketball on Shabbos? I'll tell you what I tell them. I say half court is fine. Full court is not fine. Mm-hmm. Because the <laughs> that's my compromise. Because half court, you know, you, you, you fool around. You throw the ball around. All right. Full court, you're running back and forth. It doesn't look like Shabbos to me. Half court, I can, t- I, I, I can tolerate. That's where I, <laughs> I draw the line. Right, but you but, know the difference. You understand what I'm right, saying. Right, but, but, but I, yeah, so I, I, listen, I agree with you about kids. I, I, I would tell kids too in my rabbinic function, look, play in the backyard, not in the front, which is sort of the same idea. If you have, if you have a hoop in the back, it's one thing. But that people should see you playing while you're going to show, that doesn't seem right. But, but so let's it's, talk, again, it's a kish issue. It's a hard. It's hard to judge. But let's talk about the. But you also don't want. It depends what the, who the kid is, what, what kind of community you're in. You don't want Shabbos to be the day where they're all miserable. It makes them a little bit happy to throw a ball around in a half court. I don't see a big deal on that. I okay. Really but let's talk about what Feldstein brings up in his his blog, which is there's so many professors, people who go for conferences. And they make arrangements to actually even speak as lecturers right, sure. as in, in hotels. Right. What's really the difference between that and what Terrell is doing, which is I'm playing on Shabbos, right? It's true. There are cameras and it's being videotaped. And I've got fans who are saying, Ryan, Ryan, Ryan. But how's that different than so many modern Orthodox Jews who, who, who not for saving lives, for their, uh, for their career, really hang out in a Goyesha environment on Shabbos. Right. Listen, Dovis V. Hoffman has a tshuva where he allows kids in Germany before you know, to go to school on Shabbos. Right. Same thing, run. yes. Right. You know, so taking again, classes. Again, I think what disappoints, what, what may disappoint some, and I'm not telling you they're right to be disappointed, is if, if Terrell had said, no, I won't play on Shabbos, big Gedal Yogumber, I ain't doing it on Shabbos, you know, you know, there's, 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 there's a that sends a positive message. Uh, Kiddush Hashem, of, right. of incredible. That's a positive thing, and 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 maybe the playing on Shabbos, at the very least, misses that opportunity. But uh, on the other hand, you know, to see a kid, the genie's uh, out, in other words, the genie. Well, listen, Mashiach will come and perhaps change the landscape. But assuming that doesn't occur, the genie's out of the bottle. There's going to be there's going to be other kids. I mean, you know, who are who are also going right. It's a, it's a problem. It's a, it's not a simple question. It really isn't. Yeah. This right. is not easy. This is not simple. Um, it's easy ah. to condemn and criticize, and I certainly, you know, uh, understand the criticism. But uh, on the other hand, there's a lot of positive in seeing a kid with a yarmulke out on a, a professional basketball court. There's a lot of positive to that as well. You know, it's interesting. It's it's interesting. Let me just tell you what he sees his career arc to be. He says, I want to play in the NBA. And then I guess when his body is not as agile and strong for those first five years of the NBA, then I want to play in Israel. And that's where he sees his awesome. And and what I'm saying here, and I I say it somewhat tongue in cheek, maybe we won't have to be Maguire. You know, you know, we won't have to be Maguire so many players anymore. I mean, I mean, the Israeli teams, Israelis love basketball uh, quite a bit, and maybe not as much as football. We started today, but isn't it amazing how all these these African American players went to Eretz Yisrael and became <laughs> became stars? Um, right. And and I, I think we should probably end today by by a shout out to Amari Stoudemire, 
Right, Amari, and then, uh, you know, and, and again. Who's your shot? And an opposite of a shout out to Kyrie Irving. And. Uh, well, Amari, uh, yeah, well, Kyrie Irving is, is obviously not going to play in Israel soon. But uh, <laughs> but, but Amari actually was Maguire, Kedos Vikadin. Oh, yeah. Yes. And his name is Yehoshaphat now. Right. And and my wife recently got his Shidduch resume. So <laughs> who knows? He's and looking I, for a Shidduch. Yeah, he wants a he wants a he wants a Jewish girl. He wants to have a Yiddish shidduch. Yeah, so uh, if uh, you know, if we, if we can see this. I'll go upon him. It's in, in many ways. So this is our our little sports show for today. Um, uh, sort of, you know what, Ralph? It got me out of my my uh, my Packer depression. Um, yeah, <laughs> I, I'm, but you guys I, won last week. You beat the Cowboys. Yeah, we lost last night though to the Titans. I, all right. <laughs> Thursday night football still counts. Thursday make, night games. Thir- it, it doesn't make sense, but it counts. But you know, the games this year have that have been on Thursday night have been terrible. And how about the fact that they played in Frankfurt? They played it <laughs> right. Yavol here coming down. Like what's going on up here? And Robert Clary died yesterday. Oh, you're talking about from Hogan's Heroes. Yeah. Oh, he must have been about a hundred years old. Something like that. Yeah. All right. Anyway, I'll talk to you. Okay, I got to we got to check our ham radio for about right. there it is. Take care everybody. Be well. Check you next week. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.